Let me offer a few, conver- a few observations about Palm Sunday, this day that we celebrate. We've already, if you were here early enough for Pastor Casey to read the call to worship, he read from Matthew chapter 21, and it was a description of Palm Sunday. And you know that when Jesus arrived in town, though they were expecting a conquering hero, and many of them were highly invested in that, and had read into this act that he was coming to clear out the Roman occupiers and reestablish the, uh, uh, the, the royal rule of the house of David. It didn't work out like that, but it was, a, it was quite a spectacle as he came into the, to the town that day. But part of the spectacle was the unusual way in which he entered the town. He didn't come on a war horse, didn't come on a great stallion, didn't come with lots of armed supporters, for the insurrection that was to follow, he came on a, on a colt. He came on a, a small horse, a, 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 a diminutive donkey, and, and uh, he came in kind of gently, kind of meekly. And I think people were kind of confused by that, but they were, they were cheering for him as he came in. Hosanna was the term. Hosanna means God save, God save us, God save us now. There's an urgency about that term, Hosanna. And these were desperate people. It was very difficult living under the occupation of Rome. Uh, They had very little freedom. There was constant harassment. There was lots of oppression. And uh, they longed for the glory days. Was he the one? Was this Jesus, the prophet, the one who would come and restore Israel? But he came in humility. And he came to sacrifice himself. He had told his disciples, he had told anyone who would listen, and uh, hardly anyone was, that he was coming to give his life, to lay down his life, to be the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. He would become the sacrifice. He was heading toward Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He was going to the cross. Is that the kind of conquering hero that you long for? Is that the purpose that purpose of God that you understand? Perhaps we have some sympathy for those who were caught off guard. In fact, some of them were caught off guard so badly that within days they would cry something else. Instead of Hosanna, it would be away with him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Some of the same people in the same city would turn against him because God was not fulfilling their expectations. This wasn't their desire. This isn't the way they thought about it. In some ways, looking at it from that point of view, this Palm Sunday parade was a bit of a fraud. I waited waited to say that until all the children were out of the room. Because it's it's fun to wave the palm branches. And those who said it, well, there was kind of a mixed response. Some of them may, in fact, have been longing and were ready for the Messiah to come any way God chose to send him. But others had a very definite view of what God must be doing, which sometimes we human beings, we fall into that trap. This is what God must be doing. This is the way he must answer my prayer. This is what I expect I'm entitled. This is the way I read it, and God, don't contradict the way I read it. If you go to Revelation chapter 21, let me just turn there for a moment, because we have a a different picture, and, and this is the second coming of the king. It's actually in Revelation chapter 19, a couple of verses ahead of that, a couple of chapters ahead of that. Listen to this description. He comes first in humility and then comes with authority. He comes to subdue his enemies. 
He comes to enforce justice. Listen to this description. It's quite different because this is according to God's purpose. In the first case, he is earning the right to now proclaim the salvation we're longing for because he's going to that cross and he's dying that death. And then he comes a second time. I saw heaven standing open, John the seer wrote. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. You know who this is. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, that's yet to come. He came first as the Lamb of God offering his life. He came to offer salvation. He will come next time to remove all opposition. To remove all opposition. There is, in fact, a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. There always has been. It's invisible to us, but it's been revealed to us. So that brings us back to Ephesians chapter 6. You were wondering if we were going to get there. This is the last in the series in the book of Ephesians. The message of Ephesians. Live a life of love is Paul's view. So we open up the book of Ephesians as we did a few weeks ago as we began that series. And we see this amazing way in which God has planned out the gift of salvation to shower on us, to lavish on us His love and His grace. We read in the first three chapters all about that, what God has done. It's an incredible purpose. It's a cosmic purpose. It's a personal purpose that involves and invites each one of us. And then in chapter 4, I'm doing the whole book now. In chapter 4, we're told to live a life worthy of our calling. God has done all of this, and now we're called to live a life worthy of our calling. All right? And then uh, chapter 5, we're called to live a life, we're called to live a life of love. Because that life of love is a reflection of God's love that has come and invaded this world. It's not only come into our lives, it's broken down barriers between people, between races, between ethnic groups, between Jews and Gentiles. God is pulling together a new creation. There's something powerful, even revolutionary going on. It's going to change all of our relationships as we've seen the past couple of weeks. Relationship between husbands and wives, between family members, parents and kids, between uh, us at our workplaces. Regardless of our station, regardless of our status in the world, in Christ, we have become one. And we're on common ground. We come before Him humbly and receive His gifts. And then we stand up because He empowers us now to live as new people. And by the end of that section, that long section, most of the book, most of us are saying, I'm ready to go. This is too good to pass up. God, this is your gift. This is your calling. This is my new identity. And I can live this way. I can live a life worthy. I can live a life of love. And it's almost as if Paul, at the very end of the book, says, okay, actually, you can't do it. You can't do it. Here's what you can do, however. You can do what you can't do if you submit yourself to God and let Him equip you, let Him arm you, Because this is a battle unlike one you've ever fought. Jesus himself went through this battle. 
Jesus himself won the decisive victory. And now you and I are called to participate with him and be part of this battle. This is a lot bigger than you thought. This is a lot harder than you imagine. It isn't just about your good intentions. Well, I think that would be great. I'll live a Christian life. You cannot live a Christian life in your own strength. We can't do it. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10 on this Palm Sunday when we're very aware of uh, sort of the, the military implications of this as the king rides into Jerusalem. And imagine that day, whether it's soon or later, we don't know because we're not in charge, but when God will wrap up history and resolve the issues of injustice that plagued this planet so badly and uh, we're reminded of that again and again in the headlines. And now we've got to be prepared for the battle that we're now going to participate in because what God has called us to do is impossible for us, necessary for the world, and can only be done in His power. So beginning with verse 10, finally, and that word finally means finally. This is the last word that the apostle has for us. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You thought it was. You thought your enemy was another human being. You thought it was some political personality. You thought it was somebody at work. You thought it was the person living in your own house who gives you a hard time. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the authorities, rulers, Against the, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What is that? Therefore, since we're in this battle, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me. That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Take your stand. I, I can't use that phrase without thinking of stand your ground. The law in Florida. And that's a political issue that I'm not going to touch right now. You can ask me about it later. I have my thoughts on it. I think the, the details are still coming out. But the stand your ground scenario is a lot about people on different sides of the fence confronting each other, using whatever force is necessary to solve a human problem by human means, and it always ends up tragically, as it does in this particular case. This is a different kind of battle because the enemy is not that person. That person who may be posing as our enemy is actually a victim of the energy en en enemy if they are under his control. No, we're fighting against principalities and powers. The powers that be. 
these shadowy figures. What's going on here, Paul says, there's a whole different realm, there's a whole other dimension. And what's going on there, we don't know because we don't see, but the effects of what's going on there actually spill over into our world of sensory reality. And so we've got to be prepared for what we cannot see. This is difficult for us because we're very practical people and we're very you know, bound to what's happening right in front of us. God himself is invisible to us. The greatest reality of all is unseen, and yet what God does and what God wants affects our world and calls us, of course, into a whole different way of living. Stand. Take your stand against the devil. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, talks about our relationship with this unseen reality, with the reality of evil. You believe in the reality of evil? Does it sound a bit quaint to you? Like, oh, you don't believe in that stuff. There's dysfunction, of course, but there's no evil. Um, there are people who make, make mistakes, but there's no such thing as evil. Maybe you've been around long enough. Maybe you've had enough experience. Maybe you've gotten over your naivete to recognize the fact that there really is such a thing as evil. And that people who actually intend well get wrapped up in evil somehow along the way. There's some kind of cosmic conspiracy going on here that constantly takes the very best of what humans intends and somehow it gets corrupt. Where does that corruption come from? Does somebody wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be as corrupt as I can possibly be? I think there are very few people who actually wake up in the morning and do that. Or as a little child says, I'm going to grow up to be a monster, a moral monster. I don't think it happens like that. There's some kind of influence in our world that sabotages our best intentions. It's called evil, and there's a personality behind that. And C.S. Lewis in that particular book says there's two opposite errors we have to avoid. One is to deny the reality of evil and the reality of that personality because we'll be flying blind and we'll be defenseless if we do that. I've been in some places in this world that have proven to me, unfortunately... I don't think it can be argued that there is such a thing as evil. I, I've, I've been to Haiti where voodoo is rampant and around the edges. I've heard the drums in the middle of the night and I've heard about the sacrifices. And I've wondered about such people who are so helpless that they turn to any desperate measures, even if it's evil, to find some kind of way to survive. I've been to Rwanda I stood in a church in Rwanda, a church in Rwanda, no longer a church, but now a memorial to the genocide. In a room about this size, where 500 men, women, and children were brutally murdered by their neighbors. And for a moment, I actually stood in this dimly lit room. Everybody else had left the room. I was there all by myself. It was oppressive beyond describing what that felt like as the clothes of people, of victims, of men, women, and children were lined up over here and hundreds of skulls on the shelves over here. And there was no explanation. Time magazine that year, 1994, came out with an issue and on the front it said, when hell was in session. There's no other way to describe it, but evil has broken into our world, and it's hard tracing the source at any human level. It goes beyond that. It's almost impossible to imagine. Where did that come from? How, how could you end up being that person, doing that thing? Perhaps in your own life you've had that experience. How did I get here? I didn't just do that, did I? I've been to Cambodia. The same thing. 
and you're just overwhelmed by the, the capacity of human beings to do evil. What's the inspiration for that? We are called to take our stand, but only because there is someone who is foundational for us, who is providing for us the strength and the perspective to take this on. We dare not do it in our own strength, but we dare not retreat from the battle line because we're called to face it. Now, how do we face it? How do we take, how do we take care of business? How do we fight this war? Well, we're told to put on the full armor of God. And there are six essential pieces of equipment. And uh, I hope you're paying attention to these because they're essential for us. The first is called the belt of truth. Now, a belt you wear, and especially, you know, all of us, not all of us wear belts, but some of us have to wear belts. And uh, um, we tighten them, we loosen them, we have to, you know. And if you take your belt off, you know, your pants fall down. Um, But if you're a military man, if you're a soldier, you wear your belt. It's kind of a larger, almost girdle-type belt, and it holds you together. It keeps your equipment on. It keeps your, your, your battle clothes on. You've got to keep your belt on. The belt of truth, as Paul calls it, is your integrity. It keeps you together. It holds you together. It's about not only believing in the truth, but living the truth. It's about being a person of truth. A person in whom there is no shadow. You either have integrity or you live in hypocrisy. Are you a person of integrity? We're called to not only believe the truth, but now live the truth. And when necessary, confess our abandonment of the truth and get right. Repent and get right with the truth. To be a person of truth. And the truth sets us free. So integrity is the first piece of equipment. You lose your integrity, you've lost everything. If you no longer have credibility with those who know you, with those who count on you, you've lost the relationship. And we don't have a lot of models, role models for integrity these days. Our God is a God of truth. Our God is intolerant of anything that varies from the truth, calls us back to the truth. And in Jesus Christ, we have the personification of truth. He only speaks the truth, and it's so liberating to live there. And we're called to do that. So that's where it begins. That's the first piece of equipment. Then there's the breastplate of righteousness, and it starts in the front and goes around to the back. And, of course, this is the picture of the Roman soldier and what the Romans wore. And they dominated the world at this time, and they did for a couple of centuries. And the breastplate protects the most vital organs. And for Paul, it's the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of right relationships. Are you in right relationship with God? Which means, are you submitted to Him? That's the way to be in right relationship, is to surrender to Him. It's not a relationship of equals. It's a relationship of creature to creator, to sinner to the one who redeems us from that sin. It's a relationship of total dependency. Are you in that relationship? Unless you're in that relationship, your other relationships are going to be distorted. I was uh, with a neighbor of ours, somebody I've been uh, praying for, uh, somebody who intimidates me a little bit. You can't imagine me being intimidated, can you? Because I'm a big guy, and I'm a tough guy, I would want you to believe. My neighbor's bigger than me, and he's cynical, 
to the point of, uh, you know, sort of mocking and ridiculing anything religious. And uh, I hear his loud voice coming from next door sometimes as he's talking or yelling at his wife or his children. Um, he has a really rough background. He's really disappointed in the way life has turned out for him. And uh, so naturally, I want to spend as much time as possible as I can. No, I don't. I, st- I, I kind of stay away from him. You know, I wave at him when he's next door. And uh, he's just kind of a big bully. And I just don't like big bullies. And I don't, you know, I find that distasteful. And uh, um, all of his relationships are wrong. They're, they're wrong. And he knows they're wrong. And so we go out to breakfast tonight. He's turned me down three or four times. But let's keep trying this. For some reason, God says, we're going to have this conversation when the time is right. And I'm always hoping it isn't today. <laughs> but I want to be in right relationship with God. So we had breakfast this week after three or four, you know, sort of missteps and it didn't work out and he wasn't ready. And, and so we sit down and uh, he doesn't believe, well, he thinks there's a God, but God has nothing to do with our world. There's a God, he's the almighty, he used that term, but he doesn't care about individuals. So I shared an experience where I felt God's love for me in a very personal way. He listened to that politely, um, didn't immediately dismiss it, which I thought was, was good, but can hardly imagine what I'm saying. But his other relationships, as a result, are, are, are wrong. He's very critical of his wife. He's very critical of his children. He's very critical of uh, where he works and the people around him. And if you cross him, I've seen this happen a few times, Um, he can come after you with a viciousness that, again, is a little bit intimidating to be around. His breast is exposed. His vital organs are vulnerable. He's not ready for war. Life has defeated him. He's a big, strong, and actually very bright guy. And he has no capacity to function well in this world. And his his world is, is, is shrinking a bit. And his cynicism is growing a lot. And uh, I needed to have, my, I needed to be sort of well armed myself because, you know, he can, you know, out of his own hurt, react in pretty hurtful ways. We had a great conversation, I have to say. It was um, part of the battle that I was called to fight this week, and I couldn't have done it without a sense that God had my back, that God was protecting me and that he had something in mind in this conversation, which brings me to to the third piece of equipment here, which has to do with your boots. The soldiers wore boots, and they had to be sturdy enough so they could get traction in any terrain, but they also had to be sort of supple enough so you could move quickly in them, because what we're called to do as believers is we're called to put on our gospel boots, to shod our feet with the, with the gospel of peace. We're called to take what we've gotten and go share it. Now, it's a strange war, I know, in which you're waging peace. But that's what we're doing because this is a kingdom of peace. That's why when Jesus came into Jerusalem, he was the king of peace. He was coming to being peace at a profound level, not simply a regime change, because as you know, regime change doesn't usually result in real change at a very deep level. He wanted to change not only the Romans, but the Jews. He wanted not only to change the, ma- the masses and the mobs out there, he wanted to change the heart of his own disciples. Their hearts needed to be changed. Our hearts need to be changed. We need to find peace with God and at such a level that we can now give this peace away, that we become people of shalom, 
You know, how beautiful are the, are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring peace. Are you a person of peace? Do you minister peace to people around you? Are you a reconciling kind of presence? That's how you fight this battle. That's the war that we're called to be in. And I was in it the other day with Jack. And, uh, you know, the whole male ego thing becomes, you know, one guy against another. And I, I can play that game. I, I, I kind of enjoy playing that game, actually. You know, I, I like to win. I'm competitive. Somebody said, you must really hate to lose. I said, I, I never have. I don't know what that's like. <laughs> Every guy in this room right now had a little, oh, yeah, okay. Because it's, it's all about image. Whether I've ever, ever lost it or not is none of your business. I just don't want you to think that I have or ever could. We're trying to create an impression. And that impression actually very quickly destroys the peace. It becomes a contest. It becomes, you know, one against the other. It's, it, it, it's competitive in a, in a way that's destructive. We're to bring the gospel of peace. And then there's the shield of faith. Okay, number four, if you're, if you're keeping track here. And this shield, as the Romans were able to construct this shield, it actually was uh, built in such a way that it extinguished fiery arrows or darts that came. <coughs> Didn't want to catch on fire if you were in a war. You need shield against what now as Paul changes the image? What, what, is, what, what are we being defended against? Well, against deep, dark doubts that assault all of us. Doubts about God, doubts about ourselves, doubts about this whole thing, doubts whether or not I, I can even trust what I believe. Fear, the assault of fear. How many of us live lives of, of fear and, and timidity and caution? Because, you know, we don't, our faith isn't strong. Our faith gets, gets kind of wobbly and gets kind of weak. And as soon as there's an assault, we run the other way. We give in to the fears. We let fear have the final word. You can't avoid fear, by the way. Being human is to be fearful at times and anxious. But don't let it have the last word. Let faith overcome that fear. Make that choice. We're called to stand firm. It's what God does for us, but we have to accept that. We have to live into that. We have to take the risk of fighting this battle, believing that this armament is enough, that he does have our back and our front and our lives covered by his grace. There are doubts, there are fears, and of course we know there are fiery temptations that come at us. And uh, you try to face that temptation unarmed, undefended, without a shield, it, it'll get you, especially right now. I mean, temptation is, a, is an industry in our world, in our modern world, in our modern Western world. And, and, and if you don't know that, I don't know what cave you're living in, um, and I don't know what ki- or I don't know what kind of liar you've become. Because the truth is, there's temptation all around. Temptation is not sin, but man, it quickly come, becomes and festers into such a thing as you become complicit now in the temptation. You've got to have the shield up. You've got to cry out for help. You've got to say, Lord, help me. This is, I'm putting my faith in this. God, provide a way of escape. You promised you would. I don't want to go down into this dungeon again. I've got to escape. Please let me... Let, Please provide a way of escape. I can't even imagine how I'm going to get out of this. In fact, it looks pretty good right now as I peer peer over my shield. Put your shield up, the shield of faith. What else is there? We have to look at it. The helmet of salvation. I'm not forgetting anything important, am I? 
The helmet of salvation, protecting your head. You, you don't have your head protected. You know, it doesn't matter what else is going on. If your head gets hurt, you're done. The helmet of salvation, God's ultimate provision in Christ. He has provided. I can't believe I forgot that. The devil made me do it. The helmet of salvation, the hope that God is for me and he can, even when I stumble and fall and I am undefended and a fiery dart has pierced me, that he can heal me, that he can forgive me, that he can restore to me the joy of my salvation. I've got to know that. I've got to have my head covered. You can survive any other wound any place else, but not your head. Your head directs everything else going on in your life. And then there's the one offensive weapon five defensive uh, pieces of equipment and one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's cutting. It's full of conviction. It's penetrating. Even Jack, my neighbor, can't resist the Word of God. It comes after him, both to pierce him and to heal him at the same time. It's a kind of, it's a kind of sword that, 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 that cuts right through you and makes you bleed and then cauterizes the wound at the same time. It's sort of surgery without anesthesia, you know. It's the Word of God. It's so powerful to get it into you. As we're doing today, as we're listening to this, as we're looking at this passage from Ephesians chapter 6, to wield the Word of God. We spent a lot of time yesterday as small group leaders talking about what's going on in our small groups and, and the centrality of the Word of God and not just hearing it and not just hearing it on a Sunday morning, and not just listening to it, but getting it into our lives, into our hearts, into our behavior, into our patterns, into our becoming habits, becoming habits of the heart, a new way of living according to the Word of God. And then Paul, having finished that, this analogy, this metaphor about, um, about what soldiers do when they're in a battle, and we are, he says, now, you've got to pray. Pray all kinds of prayers, is what he says. Pray all kinds of prayers. And he's, he, he literally means that. He says, pray on all occasions, all kinds of prayers, all the time for all the saints. That's a lot of all in that. It's kind of a running narrative, sharing with God everything that's happening during your day. Pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. Don't lose that connection with God. Don't think of it as a, as a formal practice like, well, okay, now we're going to pray. Now we're going to say grace before a meal. Those are wonderful prayers, bedtime prayers with your kids, wonderful prayers. But for us who are going to follow him and who are part of this battle, we need to be in constant touch with our commander. We need to be constantly listening and constantly expressing and constantly working with him as we're working through these issues. So constantly as you pray, pray as you drive. Don't close your eyes. Just pray. And don't worry about, am I using the right words? There are no right words. It has to do with the condition of your heart. Are you being honest? Are you being real? Are you being a person of integrity? Pour it out in front of God. Cry out, which is what the word prayer means. And then listen and then respond as you get the answer that you need, the answer that you've forgotten, the answer somebody else reminds you of. We can actually be kind of joined together in praying for and with each other, constantly be in prayer. And Paul, by the way, says... And I need it too. You're kidding. You're Paul the Apostle. You're the great Paul the Apostle. You don't need prayer. Every once in a while I ask uh, somebody, you know, for prayer here. And I get a little bit of a, oh, you need prayer too? No, I don't. Once you're past 50, you don't need prayer anymore. 
I could say 60, because that's really what I am, but I don't want you to think I'm that old. So I spent some time with Jack last week. Well, tomorrow I get time with Bob. You think Jack was tough. Bob is 90 years old. Now, he's not as big and strong as Jack, but he's lived 90 years without God. You think he's going to change now? You think the devil's going to let him go after having him for 90 years? He's not going to let him go. I mean, I'm out of my element here. I mean, I can talk forever. You know that. But I don't know how to get into his heart. It's going to take every weapon, spiritual weapon, the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. It's going to take prayer. It's going to take a heart full of love. It's going to take, I can't argue him into the kingdom of God. He is, you know, he's invested in another way of looking at all of this. He knows it and he's rejected it. And I have these doubts. They're coming in like fiery arrows right now saying, what can you say to him? You're not going to make any difference. You're going to look like a fool talking to him. And I can't care about any of that. I've got to say, Lord, you've got something in mind here. I've got the gospel of peace. I've got to go to him. So I called him last week. His daughter called me and said, would you go to him? He just turned 90. Would you please have a conversation? And I'm thinking, well, I don't know. Is this really my assignment? Is this in my job description? Am I supposed to be? Yes, as a matter of fact. I'm wondering who God is sending you to. I wonder who, what kind of situation you need prayer about. And Paul says, I want to be fearless. I don't need to impress anybody or argue with anybody. I just need to share what I know is true fearlessly. The world is waiting for some of us to find our voice, to open our mouth, to share the conviction about the truth that we know. Not to bash somebody else. Not to, you know, sort of bash them into submission. But just to declare ourselves. Because we're not declaring ourselves. We're declaring the gospel. We're declaring the good news. And hopefully that good news is something we ourselves live. So it's, it's believable when we talk about good news. People say, yeah, there is something good news about you. There is something good news about you. So here we are on a Sunday morning. It's Palm Sunday. It's also April Fool's. We're a week away from Easter. We live in a world that's mixed up with good news and bad news. And are we coming? Are we going? What do we believe? What do we not believe? We, co- we claim that we're Christians, many of us, most of us. I can do this. going to walk out of here and be good people. Don't be naive. You need to be well-armed. You need to be well-defended. You need to stand in the power of the Lord. There's no other way to do this. It's fitting that we close this time with communion because we're forced to humble ourselves to say, we're starving to death unless we get the nourishment that God provides. Let's spend time in prayer together. Lord, we're about to walk out into a war and many of us are not ready for battle. We're not dressed for it. We're not armed. Prayer for us is not a matter of survival. It's sort of recreational. It's occasional. We'll let somebody else pray. 
We don't know your word. And we don't know how it applies to our lives. And yet it's our primary weapon. Our words don't carry weight, Lord, but your word wins every battle. You are more powerful than the worst enemy we could imagine. And these forces of evil that are arrayed against you and against your people and against those who don't know you to make sure they don't ever escape, those forces have been defeated at the cross. And we have good news to tell about that battle. And we know where all this is going. And we know the final battle is in your hands and will be won. And we live in the hope, the sure hope of that. You're calling us to be the church militant using these unconventional weapons. We can't resort to the hatred. We can't resort to the deception. We can't resort to power plays. We can't resort to egotism. We can't resort to those things. Lord, forgive us when we try to. We're called to live a life of love. We're called to live a life that emulates the very life of Christ. We're called to express, Lord, your life, the life of your Son, to the people around. But we're called to do it fearlessly, knowing there's so much at stake. Thank you, Lord, for this moment and for this table that reminds us of the victory won at the cross, the death of our Savior, who in fact provides for the salvation of the world to all who will believe, to all who will be made right in a world that's gone so wrong. So yes, here on Palm Sunday, we recognize sometimes our worship is superficial and our commitment is is not heartfelt. But as we head into this week and all the drama of this week, And the meaning of this week, may our faith surge beginning today, beginning right now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.